So we come to the place in First uh, Peter, as, as uh, um, Kevin mentioned uh, earlier, that um, we, we're going to talk about marriage. Last week we talked about slaves and their relationship to masters, all uh, in the context of uh, how we are to be uh, towards those who are outside the church. And so uh, today we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, 1-7. I'm going to read to you the whole uh, text, and we're going to... Um, we're going to focus our attention on the first couple of verses, and then next week we'll look at the rest of this passage. So we'll be on this passage for a couple of weeks. I was reminded when my daughter was home at Christmas, uh, she sat with Marty in the back one day, uh, one Sunday, and I began reading the text, and she grabbed Marty's hand, and she said, he's reading the same verses he read last week. Has he forgotten? Is dad Okay. And um, because my wife knows me and loves me, she said, he knows what he's doing. You, you, you can relax. And so uh, and, and if we'll be on this text for two weeks, and we'll read it for two weeks, and it's not because I forgot that I read it today that I'll read it again next week, okay? So just to reassure you about that. So First uh, uh, Peter 3, verses 1 to 7, this is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So before we dig into the text today, let me just, I want to say a couple of things about, in general, about marriage and, and kind of set the stage for, for where we're going with this. I, as somebody who performs weddings, as somebody who, who does premarital counseling with lots of people, uh, I just did a wedding yesterday. Uh, this is something I think a lot about, and one of the things that I can say definitively about marriage is that it is mysterious, on so many levels. Why we marry the people we do, once we're married, what we do to make it work is, uh, is just phenomenal to me. And, and beyond that, what happens in people's houses behind closed doors and around dinner tables and stuff like that is amazing, amazing to me. And so let me just say that as we look at this issue of marriage over the next couple of weeks, a couple of things to keep in mind. One is how you work it out within biblical parameters. Just work it out within biblical parameters. Nobody's marriage has to look like anybody else's. And trust me, I've been your pastor long enough that none of you have perfect marriages. And none of you are even on the road to perfect marriages. And none of you will ever get near that road to be moving towards perfect marriages or perfect wives or perfect husbands. So the pressure's off. 
okay? Um, secondly, the other thing that I note about this is, is that one of the things that marriage certainly is, is a representation, a declaration to the world of the gospel. And that's one of the things that the New Testament is very clear about is, is that what we see in marriage is a picture, a lived parable of the love of Jesus Christ for his church. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. However, having said that, one of the things that you recognize about that is, is that that's a rocky marriage. It's a really rocky marriage. Not on his part, but on our part. Right? We're, we're not always faithful. We're not always mindful. We're not always aware, right? So, so, the, so, the, so the fact is, those, those things are... Uh, uh, are, are very true, very real, and very significant in this. Um, and so the way people make this work uh, is just a, a amazing and shocking and beautiful and wonderful and terrifying and hurtful and all of those things rolled together. Um, recently, I was with my mom and dad. If, if they make it, if they can continue living, which I have every reason to hope and believe they will, they will celebrate their 66th wedding anniversary uh, this June. They, my dad was 20, my mom was 19 when they got married. So my dad had surgery, my mom's a nervous wreck. So I'm sitting with her as the dutiful son to try to figure out how to keep, you know, it's not serious surgery, but it is surgery, and so we're, we're doing this. And so I can always tell when my mom's nervous because she needs her hands like this, she's doing this. And so I'm like, Mom, tell me about the day Dad asked you to marry him. Now, I've heard this story. Now, part of the thing is my mom's reached the age where that day is clearer to her than today. Okay? And so it's something she can speak very authoritatively about with a lot of detail. Well, your father said, came home from work early, and he came and he picked me up in your Uncle Sterling's truck because Dad didn't have a car. Uh, and we drove over by the river. They were, my dad worked on a power plant for Duke Power. They're all on rivers. And he reached in his pocket, pulled out the ring, slid it on my finger, and asked me if I would marry him. And I said, what'd you say, Mom? <laughs> She's like, I said I would. And then I said, Mom, what'd you do next? And she blushed. And she said, well... You know, we were parking, <laughs> and, and it was away from everybody else, so I guess you could say we made out. <laughs> I was like, yes, Mom, you could say that, and uh, <laughs> that's awesome. So, um, and, and one of the things that I think about that is, you know, just what, what, what a great great story that is from, from an 80, almost 86-year-old, because the, 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 they still make out. But the thing that, um, the thing that, that uh, really got me about that was, was there have been times where I've talked with my mom and dad uh, about their marriage, and, and you know, the fact is they've known each other almost their whole lives. They've been married almost their whole lives. And I don't think they could think of life any other way except with each other. 
And do they sin against each other? Yes. Have they sinned against each other? Yes. But for, for, I believe that God gets honor and glory in the way in which they live together. Now, one of the things that I think is profound about this is, and as I've thought about this, is my, my parents are bright, uh, talented people, and they work hard at the lives that God has given them. But one of the things that is true of them that I want to say right off the bat here before, before you get distracted as a prophetic word, and by prophetic, I mean a correcting word, to this congregation is that my mom and dad believed that they had gifts and they had things to offer for the kingdom of God, but their ministry for the advancement of the kingdom of God began in their home, in their marriage, in the raising of their sons, and that while they would serve and care for and do things for the advancement of the kingdom of God out there, first and foremost, their job was what happened in that house. That the kingdom of God advanced first and foremost at home, and that would drive everything else. We as a congregation are tempted to believe that the kingdom advances and the exciting stuff of ministry happens out there, which is an unbiblical viewpoint. It happens first and foremost to those who are closest to us. Um, I came across a, a David Brooks quote, hadn't quoted Brooks in a while, so it's time to throw one up there, that he wrote this week talking about this very thing, about the way we think about sainthood and the way we think about pouring our lives out for others without first and foremost thinking about those who are closest to us. And he says this, love by its nature should be strongest when it is personal and intimate. To make love universal, to give no priority to the near over the far, is to denude love of its texture and warmth. It is really a way of avoiding love because you make yourself invulnerable. What? <laughs> wow. That's, what a great, what a, what a great uh, description of that, right? So, and I, that, that the, the place where we are most vulnerable and the place where the gospel uh, has maybe its greatest impact and effect is with those and in those relationships that are closest to us, right? That happen right inside our own home. So listen, quit scrapping for something great to do out there and do something small, every day, faithfully, with the folks that God has placed in your home, right? What, what, a, what a great thing for all of us to, to, to think a little bit about uh, uh, this morning. So let's dig in here to marriage. A couple of notes regarding context and culture. One of the things, one of the problems that you have when you come across a text like this about marriage is you think, I, you know, I already know what it's about. I already know what it's going to say. I know people who are married. I'm married. I've been married. Uh, my, you know, there, there are marriages all around me. And, and I know what our culture thinks about marriage, and I know how this works. And so what your temptation is, is to read our understanding of marriage and, and our, the way we think about it into the text without understanding, first and foremost, the very nature of the context, the audience that, that Peter is writing to. 
And, and you have to get the bigger context. Just like last week we saw, he writes to slaves first because there are a lot of slaves in the church. And the fact is, he doesn't write to masters, so there must not be very many masters in the church. And what he wants for those slaves and what he wants for uh, the husbands and wives that he's going to address now is to live in such a way that the gospel will be honored among those who don't believe it. Remember what, what the whole context of this is, how to live in a way so that their good manner of life among the nations, among the people around them, would, would, be, uh, would, would shut the criticism and the gossip up about Christians. And so, so what he's saying here is, just as he told slaves to, to submit to, uh, to masters who are even unjust, when he says here that... Um, to submit to husbands who are unbelieving, one of the things that you have to see about this is, is he is trying uh, to encourage us, following the example of Christ, seeing the atoning work that Jesus has done for us, let that be the energy that drives us in a way to do this kind of counter-cultural, uh, counter-intuitive way of preaching the gospel and of asserting the truth and the glory of God uh, to those who, who might not believe. And so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty powerful and profound thing for us to, to think about first and foremost. So, so primarily the wives that he's talking to uh, in this text that he addresses first are primarily women who are married to men who don't believe. Next slide. Uh, and that's a pretty, pretty interesting thing because in this society, husbands were in charge of religion and the expectation was that the household followed the husband's desire. One of the things that you see in the New Testament over and over again is the profound nature of uh, the effect that the head of household has on the rest of the, of the household. When, when the head of household believes the gospel, everybody in the household uh, participates then in, in that church. You see that over and over again. You see that with the Philippian jailer. You see that with Lydia, Right? And so, so the, the truth is, this was a big thing. The head of household determined this. And, and, and husbands had unbelievable power. Husbands and fathers were, had almost unlimited power over their, their wives and their children to do just about whatever they wanted to do. And certainly when it came to the issue of faith, that's true. So here's an interesting thing. These are women who are more than likely going against their husband's desires, okay? That he's going to tell to submit. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so, let's, so we've got to put that submission there in a particular context and the way in which it's going to work out uh, in, in, their, uh, uh, in their relationship. So Peter clearly focuses his address on women whose husbands are not Christians, and not that he would give different advice to women whose husbands were Christians. And he addresses them as independent moral agents whose decision to turn to Christ he supports and whose goal to win their husbands he encourages. 
This is quite a revolutionary attitude for that culture. So, so right off the bat, what you have to see here is, is that Peter is, is approving of and encouraging the fact that these women probably have gone against their husband's wishes in believing the gospel but, and, and participating in the life of the church. And not only that, that these women have the heart's desire, that they have the drive, the missionary zeal, that their husbands would come to faith in Christ. And so he approves of all that. He thinks that's a good thing, even as he urges upon them this, this uh, response to their husbands of submission. Okay? So you, gotta, you need to hold those two things in tension with one another because those, are, those two things are what's going on here. That's, that's what's happening. He's going to tell them to submit in a situation where they are already acting probably in a way that puts them in some sort of conflict with their husbands. Next slide. So, and the classic example of this is found in Monica, uh, the mother of St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine writes this of, of his mother. His, uh, his father's name was Patricius, Patricius, I think. Um, this is what he writes about his mom, and he must have had this text in mind when, when he wrote this. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you, right? So this lines up exactly with what we're, what we're getting at here. So what, what, what Peter wants these women to see is these wives who are uh, in, in, in many ways in a dangerous situation, in a tenuous situation, being, being married to husbands who don't believe that he sees submission as something not just that will keep them safe or, or something that will keep them, you know, keep, keep the marriage together, but he sees it as something that's beautifying. But not just beautifying, but he sees it also as redeeming. That, that the, the submission that Augustine bore witness to in his mom, to his dad, was the thing that God used in the end to win him, to gain him, right? So next slide. So let's, let's, because this is such a hard thing and because people um, in our culture, <clears throat> we think of relationships in, in such a transactional way that the Bible thinks of them as an orga- in, a, in an organic way. So what we think about this is, uh, the way we tend to think about <clears throat> relationships is who has the power, right? And so everything's kind of a transaction of power. The Bible does not view relationships that way. The, the Bible views it in a much more organic way, that there is a structure with which God gives relationships, with which he gives marriage, but within that there is give and take, there is uh, action and response, uh, uh, there is love, there's deference, there is uh, uh, all of those things going on within the structure that God gives to those uh, to those relationships. And so, so we have to say, I have to spend a lot of time uh, pointing out a few things that submission is not so that, uh, that, so that we're clear about this. Uh, and there's a bunch of little dots up here. Uh, all of those, because <laughs> we have a lot of misunderstandings about what submission is not. So first of all, submission is not putting the husband in the place of Christ right? Peter's very clear here that what he says is that we have a view to Jesus in in, in the midst of this, that we have a view to the Lord. So we don't make our husbands 
uh, these wives don't make their husbands the Lord of their lives, right? They don't, they don't make them the ultimate authority in their lives. But what they do is they see their relationship with their husband and they relate to him, they submit to him in a certain way because they have entrusted themselves to the Lord and because of the Lord, because they see him and because the Lord sees them, right? Secondly, submission does not mean that you give up independent thought. Clearly, it doesn't mean that because these women have, have believed the gospel and their husbands haven't, right? So, so they've already done some things there that their husbands probably are like, what are you doing? This is crazy. This Jesus? You're going to church? What? Right? So it doesn't mean giving up independent thought. Certainly it doesn't, because they're already independently exercising their relationship uh, 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 with the church and with Christ. It also doesn't mean giving up efforts to influence or to guide her husband. Now, let me just say, the way in which he wants this to happen is not by nagging. Now, is it okay to say nagging? I just said it. Um, uh, it might be a sexist word, Right? Because you know what a nag is? A, a nag is a horse, right? A female horse, a, a negative term for a female horse, right? Isn't that right? Is that right? Joe Brown, is that right? You, you, you're looking at it on Google, right? Okay. <laughs> I think it is. Anyway, so nagging, I think we, you know, even if you're offended by nagging, I think you know what it is. Because you've probably been nagged before in your life. And you know how that works. Nagging, like so many unbiblical and ungodly things, short-term effective, long-term destructive, right? But boy, I'll take that short-term if I can just get the relief of you doing what it is I want you to do. So um, we have a situation with somebody who lives at our house right now who... um, he will not, for some reason, for some reason, he just can't close the door. And it's cold. It's cold. And I, I thought, you know, geez, it's, it's been very sanctifying for me because it's given me an opportunity to repent numerous times and to pray, to cry out to God, you've got to give me a strategy other than nagging to get him to close the door. Hadn't happened yet. So uh, God's working on me in that. So I, I, think this is, I think this is a pretty powerful thing. Um, I, everything I know about submission, by the way, and this is going to be embarrassing for somebody, but everything I know about submission, I learned from my wife. And that's as it should be. Uh, this is going to embarrass her, but I'm going to embarrass myself more by telling you this. So we had been married a couple of weeks, and uh, she came up to me one day, and she said, Hey, would you like me to pick up your dirty clothes? Now... A man who's living with his wife in an understanding way, as Peter says here, would understand what's really going on here, right? (laughs) But my thought is, man, I should have gotten married sooner. (laughs) (laughs) This is working out really well for me, 
this is awesome. Yes, I do want you to pick up after me, right? Would you do that? This is great. What, what else would you like to do for me, right? So you get my drift on this, right? Okay. It also doesn't mean giving in to every demand. By, by, by definition, we must recognize that one of the things that's going on in these households that he's addressing is there's some conflict, right? And so, so Peter would never say to these wives in their quiet gentleness and their entrusting themselves and their beautifying of themselves and in submitting to their husbands and serving their husbands, he would never say to them that you give in to every demand and that you do anything that's clearly against the word of God or that you do something that would be uh, uh, ultimately d- destructive. You don't, you don't do that, right? And so that there is an opportunity actually for there to be some conflict in the midst of this marriage. Now, when one doesn't submit because one is not as smart or competent. In fact, what he says there is, is that the wives, these women, are heirs together with their husbands of, of, of the grace of life. So their, their status, their inheritance is the same, right? Their, their place in Jesus is, is secure. And so, so even, with, even, even to, to submit to the believing husband doesn't mean that you do that because you're not as smart or competent. In fact, the wives who are married to unbelieving husbands are smarter than their husbands because they believe the truth. They know the score, right? Okay, good. Um, You don't submit because you're fearful. In fact, uh, fear is the one thing that will keep you from doing what it is that Peter's talking about here. Peter, Peter has said to slaves that they submit to their masters because they know that they are entrusting themselves to the one who judges justly. And just like we said before, just because God has placed you under a particular authority does not mean that he approves of the way that authority treats you. Does not necessarily mean that he approves of the way that authority is using the authority that God has given them, right? And so we need not be fearful because we can entrust ourselves knowing that as we entrust ourselves to this one who judges justly. It also <clears throat> means that submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. Now, one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that Jesus Christ was the Lord, and he submitted himself to his parents. Jesus Christ was Lord, and he stripped down and cleaned his disciples' feet, right? And so, so the fact of the matter is the way in which we think about this is that somehow or other that submission somehow or other is this thing that uh, makes us um, uh, unequal in terms of our status could, could not be further from the truth. Because we, like I said, wives are heirs with their husbands of the gracious gift of life. And so this This is the thing that is so hard for us to to get our brain around is that there's submission in role and equality in dignity and importance. You know, we think, you know, we we live in a culture where what matters is your title, the name on the door, the the, the office that you have, or uh, the place that you have, the parking spot that you get, or or whatever. But the, the fact of the matter is 
there is no difference in terms of dignity. There is no difference in terms of love. There is no difference in terms of any of those things between the husband and the wife. They are equal, but the roles are different, right? So uh, it's, it's really important for us to, to kind of to, 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 to wrap our, you know, just to, to wrap our brains around that, right? So what is submission? Well, first of all, Peter says it's an inter, inner quality of gentleness. Now, one of the things that is so important about this, one of the things that uh, God has really been teaching me lately is that so much of what I do, so much of what I say, so much of what I teach, so much of how I treat people is really designed for that person. And it is really designed to elicit a certain kind, a good, often good and appropriate response. That, that what I want to do is not just to gain people's approval or whatever, but I will say something or be true to something because that'll be good for you. And you know what? That's okay. But it's ungodly in the sense that what's happening here is what God says to these, these wives is that this inner quality of gentleness, this inner quality of beauty that you have here is precious to God. Even if it's not precious to your husband, or even if it's only sometimes precious to your husband, God delights in this in you. He delights in it because God delights in being trusted. He delights in being trusted. So, so this quiet, gentle trust that allows us and frees us then to submit is something for God. It's for God. It's not even for your husband. Not ultimately. And then secondly, by acknowledging a, a God-ordained authority, right? That is simply recognizing that this is the way God has structured things. And so within that, there must always be a mutual consideration and deference, right? Uh, he's going to say that uh, to, to husbands that you treat your wives with respect, that precisely because of the weaker place that they have in the relationship, the weaker place in terms of, 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 of role. But the fact of the matter is, there must always be mutual consideration and deference. And so the likewise that he uses here does not mean that wives are like slaves to, uh, uh, to their husbands as their masters. What it means is, is that you submit in, with the same motive for the Lord's sake, that we always have Jesus Christ in view in this relationship. Next slide. Now, next week, we're going to look at husbands uh, a little bit more. But for now, what I want to do is just to focus on how powerful submission is. And I want to focus on that for a second because I think we don't believe it, because it feels so weak. But in fact, this is what Peter says is the tool that God uses to win, to win, to win that unbelieving, hard-hearted, cold man. To win him. Now, Jesus Christ, when he goes to the cross, as we're going to celebrate as we go to the supper, looks like the ultimate in loss. He's deserted, he's spit upon, he's beaten, he is rejected, 
And all of that is precisely the victory that he is winning for us over sin. Because Jesus Christ is submitting to to the punishment for our sin, he overturns the way in which we tend to think about the way life should be. It is his death that is our victory. It is his death scorning the shame that Lee is the path to glory. And so, so when you think about this, when you, when you, when you look at this, the, the, the fact is that we win by losing. Now, I know that sounds like, oh, that is so much gobbledygook. No, I win by winning, right? <laughs> there, there, there's, only, there's only one winner, and it's got to be me. The fact, the, the fact is, the fact is what we, we do when we come to the Lord's table and we proclaim his death, we are saying, Jesus Christ really died, and that death won me. It won me. It is the victory that secures my place at his table. And so when, when we think about this, one of the things that is so profound about us, and one of the things that the gospel does for us is, as we see Jesus submitting to all of this, in sacrificing himself for us, that is the thing, that is the power, that is the work that God uses to win me, to win the world, to redeem. You you, you can almost never look in the Bible with this thing, this teaching about submission without seeing that it is the powerful thing, the very powerful thing that God uses to win to redeem. And so as we come today to the table, 